and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. On today's episode, we have something a little different. I'll be talking with an educator and Congressional Medal of Honor Citizens Honor recipient. Molly Hudgens will be joining us from her school in Tennessee. She is the author of a newly published book, Saving Sycamore, the school shooting that never happened. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. I am thrilled to welcome Molly to the Mission Inspire podcast, and I'm really excited for you all to hear her amazing story. So hi, Molly. How are you? Hi, Mo. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you all today to share our story about Sycamore Middle School and the miracle, I think, that we had happen here. Absolutely. Um, I'm excited for everybody to hear this story. I can't wait to hear it uh, also. So Molly, you're an educator, you're a mother, a survivor, and a hero. So will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led up to the school shooting that never happened? Okay, well, uh, I actually live in uh, Ashland City, Tennessee, and I work in Pleasant View, Tennessee, which is about six minutes apart from each other. And I've grown up here in Cheatham County, lived here all my life. I'm a fifth generation Cheatham Countyan. So when I graduated from college, it made sense to return home to, to Tennessee to work and to teach. And so I was hired here at Sycamore Middle School at the ripe old age of 22. And I taught seventh grade language arts and eighth grade language arts before moving to the counseling department in 2006. Uh, and a year later, our first son Bradley was born and everything was right with the world. Um, I have worked here at Sycamore for my entire professional career, but the story behind Saving Sycamore actually started in 1999, which was the the 98-99 school year was my first year here at Sycamore as a teacher. And in April of 1999, I was here at school when I first learned about the school shooting that had taken place at Columbine High School in Colorado. And for reasons that I didn't quite understand at the time, I uh, began really thinking about school shootings, uh, not so much for what I felt like the, a lot of the general public was interested in. I didn't, I didn't want to know details or specifics necessarily about the crime, but I wanted to know more about the two boys who were involved because in my mind, I could not understand how two kids, high school seniors, could plan something of this magnitude over a year's time and, and no one have any concept of that happening. And so I started reading everything that I could find that was written by a professional. I read mental health publications, journals, uh, books that were written by law enforcement and educators directly connected to the situation. And so as I started to do this, it would open more doors to other materials and publications to read. And so I spent from 1999 until 2009 reading all of these materials, gathering them together, and I convinced our counseling supervisor to let me create a training for the 18 school counselors in my county. And so I wrote Recognizing Red Flags, an Educator's Role in Preventing School Violence, and I shared it with our 18 counselors in our small town. And it was basically a psychological in-depth analysis of about 30 school shooters. And of course, during this these 10 years, my family, uh, my husband, my parents, my closest friends could not understand why I would be so interested in a topic like this. And to be quite honest, I wasn't, I wasn't sure either. Um, I know that I felt very convicted about doing it. So after I completed the training, I um, 
decided maybe I could share that with other educators. And so we traveled, I traveled throughout Tennessee doing that training for other people and uh, for free for anybody who would listen to me, mostly juvenile court and law enforcement. And so uh, on the day that this event would take place at our school, people had been very carefully orchestrated to help me. And I had no idea that that would be coming. So that's kind of the backstory to how I how I became interested in shootings. But of course, the fact that we had an averted situation here is a whole different miracle. Well, so before we get into that, I do think that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the things you had mentioned before when we talked was how people were just kind of interwoven into your life. And it's it's neat, to, it, you know, retrospectively, it's neat to see how that thread has kind of weaved through and prepared you for what happened that day. Um, so well, let's talk a little bit about that day. Was okay. it like any other day? Can you tell us what happened? It was uh, just a normal Wednesday. I was training for the Bowling Green Marathon. So I got up that morning to run 10 miles before school started and the treadmill overheated at 9.69. And so I remember- <laughs> See, That's that right, that, that right there. That's the heroic thing that you <laughs> that got up and it. ran. You know, right, right. <laughs> or three o'clock in the morning. So I went outside okay, yep. to finish running. Yeah, <laughs> went outside to finish running around our pool and and remember noticing the steam coming off of the water and thinking that fall was coming. And I got dressed that morning in a in a skirt I paid eight dollars for. Didn't even really like the skirt. Just thought it would be comfortable. And I, I wore a black workout shirt because I was planning on going to the gym later. And uh, got dressed and came to school. Never any hints that anything might possibly have been wrong. So I got to school that morning and there were a large group of students gathered outside in front of the building. I was slightly alarmed by that because that's not our normal practice. Uh, And I soon realized it's because September 28th of 2016 was a See You at the Poll Day, which is a national initiative for students. If they choose, they can gather around the flagpole uh, one day a year to have prayer in the morning. And that just happened to have been that particular morning. So I had planned to run inside, put my things away, come back out. And and, uh, that was not what was meant to be. So the day, day started off very normally no indicators of anything to come. Interesting. So can you go ahead and tell us then, uh, since you weren't uh, at the poll with the kids, what happened? So um, when I was in my office putting things away, a young man came in and I immediately recognized him because I had met with him the Friday before. And so he came in and he just said, you know, Miss Hudgens, would it be okay if I met with you Uh, later today during Related Arts, which was about 1030. And so I looked at my calendar on my desk. I didn't have anything scheduled. And I said, sure, honey, that'd be fine. You can uh, just just come down there, let me know, and I'll I'll get you one for your teacher. And so he left. And I went about my morning routine, which is to walk the hallways. We kind of make rounds in the morning and check in with all the teachers and just visit with students in the hallways, trying to kind of uh, intercept any issues that may, you know, some kids have a a bad morning, they get to school, they can't find things, they're frustrated. And if we can troubleshoot those things early, it sometimes can help the day get off to a better start. So I had come back to my office after making rounds and I was in the the office adjacent to me, which was my uh, my co-counselor, Glenn Harlinger. And we were having breakfast when this young man came back and he said, "Uh, Miss Hudgens, I don't think that I can wait until Related Arts to meet with you. Can I just meet with you now? And so I told him, sure, why don't you head on over to my office and I will um, be there in just a second. And so I gobbled down my last bites of breakfast and uh, dropped my dishes in the sink in the outer office and came in, closed the door behind me. 
walked around and sat down uh, at my desk. Again, not really um, feeling as if anything was unusual or out of order. We started talking. And as I mentioned, I had just met with him the week before. Another student had told me that he had a friend he was concerned about and he had felt that I might need to meet with that young man. So I had met with him that Friday. So I was somewhat familiar with him after having had a pretty lengthy conversation. So we started talking and I realized probably about 10, maybe 10 minutes into the conversation that something wasn't right. Um, I first noticed this by the reaction that my body had. Uh, I noticed my heart rate started to increase. And I, I mentioned, you know, I was a pretty avid runner. And I remember thinking my heart doesn't beat this fast when I'm running. And then I felt almost as if somebody had taken something warm and poured it on top of my head, like it was running down my neck. And I remember thinking, don't faint. And that's when I knew something, something is not right. Um, his mannerisms and behavior indicated that he was very nervous. He um, started asking me a series of questions and, and I was very careful in my responses to those because the questions were very unusual and very concerning. And so at one point during this, these questions, I thought to myself, he's got a gun. And, you know, I believe that was, that was something that God gave me. I think it was an, an indicator to help me start to prepare in my mind for what I was going to do. And, and then I, I remember thinking for such a time as this, uh, Esther is my favorite character from the Bible. And I, and I thought, you know, all these years that people were questioning why I was researching and studying about school shootings. And there is a kid right now in my office with a gun. And all of this happened prior to my having seen it. Um, but I just knew that it was there. So as we continued to talk, he at one point unzipped his jacket and stuck his hand inside of his jacket and started to tap on something. And I remember feeling angry. Um, something rose up inside of me and I said, not my school, not my, this will not happen here. And I knew that um, if there were going to be some type of confrontation or altercation between us, that he would have to kill me before I would let him leave this room. And it's funny, I've never thought about harming a student. I never would. That's not my personality, not my mindset at all. But on that day, it became about protecting the people in this building. Um, and I say that because I'm sitting here today uh, in the same place talking with you. So it, it it's very real to think of it in that way. And so um, I, eventually I asked him, what are you know, what are you tapping on? And he said to me that he had a pencil box. And I knew that wasn't true. I'd never seen an eighth grader with a pencil box. <laughs> so, um, and so I... Um, he, we continued talking and he told me, you know, I have something to tell you that I bet nobody's ever told you before. And I knew in my heart what he was going to tell me, but I responded by saying, well, honey, uh, I, I don't know what you're going to tell me, but I've been doing this job for a long time. So I doubt there's anything you could tell me that I haven't heard before. And he said, I bet you've never had anybody tell you they had a gun before. And wow. I, the first thing that came into my head, I said, well, uh, no, no, I haven't, but um, you probably wouldn't be the first one to bring a gun to school. And at that point, he withdrew from inside his pocket the gun. He laid it uh, on my desk with the base facing away from me. I remember looking at it and reading the word millennium upside down and backwards and trying to determine if it was a, um, a Beretta or a, a 
like what kind of, uh, of gun it was. In other right. words, I wanted to know how many bullets were possibly in it. And at the same time, he reached in with his other hand and pulled out another magazine of ammunition that he stood up on my desk. And from that, I could count bullets. So I kind of had an idea. Uh, and then there was a holster that would allow him to attach the magazine to his ankle. And so as soon as that happened, I stood up from behind my desk and I put my hands out over across the desk. He was seated across from me and I went to touch it. And as soon as I put my hands on the gun, he yanked, as I said to him, why don't you let me take this and then we'll talk about what's really going on. And when I said that, he yanked it all away. Um, he shoved the, the additional magazine, the holster into his pocket and he held the gun pointed with his left hand down at the floor. Wow. And so kind of with my hands raised, I walked around my desk. I had a chair that sat beside it. I walked around the chair and I got down on my knees beside him and I put my left hand on his right shoulder and I just reached over with my right hand and interlaced the fingers of my right hand with his right hand. Wow. Why don't, why don't we talk about what's going on? And so he began to share with me um, the situation that he was facing. And I, I realized very quickly that any of the problems that he had going on in and of themselves individually would not have been a, a major issue for anyone, not even a child. But for him, all of these things had swirled themselves together that morning into this perfect storm. And so um, we continued to talk there together. He was concerned about what would happen to him. He felt as if he could not give me the gun. I had asked him for it many times and he would always tell me, I wanna give it to you, but I just don't think that I can. We, we talked about options that he had. Um, it was very important to me as this conversation progressed that I tried to determine what was going on. I knew that he believed that if he did not harm people at our school, this other terrible event was going to happen. And in order for me to try to meet him where he was, it was very important that I forget my own reality and my own perspective and make what was going on in our situation, uh, my reality, make it his. I had to, had to, again, like I said, meet him where he was and try to understand what was going on in order to, to create a plan for how to get him to give me the gun. I knew that classes would be changing and they did twice during the time that he was with me. Every time it would take seven minutes for that to happen. And I would just pray, you know, please don't let the sounds from the restroom or the locker door slamming or the conversation in the hallway, please don't let that be a distraction because I was worried that he would become aware of how close potential victims were. And so I remember the, the relief I would feel as, as it would get quieter and I would know that the kids were back in their classrooms with their doors locked. Uh, I would feel this sense of, um, of, of security knowing that they're now what stood between them and him were uh, three doors and me. And so during the course of the conversation, um, I knew that a lot of time was passing and that if we did not, if I could not find a way to get him to relinquish the weapon, there was a possibility someone else would come into this room. The counseling department is second only to the office in terms of traffic during the day. 
We have staff who come in and out to make coffee to get things from the refrigerator to talk to us about students. We have kid, we are the junior beta sponsors at my school. We had kids coming in to bring uh, dues. It was time for, for joining for that year. So we had a lot of seventh graders coming in. And I was concerned that someone might come in and there could be, you know, could be an issue. So I was very aware at this point of how much time had passed. And so at one point I said to him, you know, honey, I don't know what it is, but I know that God has a plan for your life. And I remember that he stiffened in the chair and he looked down at me and he said, Miss Hudgens, do you believe in God? Wow. And I remember thinking, oh my, you said sank his stomach. And I said to him again, the first thing that came into my head, which I think again, the Lord provided for me, I said, well, um, I do, but I feel like you don't. Is there a reason that you don't? And he explained to me that he had asked for help many times, but felt like God had never given him any. And I said to him, well, you know, what do you think this is? Maybe, maybe God wasn't telling you no, maybe he was just telling you to wait. Uh, and I told him, I promise you, I will not leave you. And we're going to figure out what to do. And then it struck me that he had mentioned God. And I'm ashamed to say that I paused for a minute because I thought you should pray with him. But then I thought, can I do that? You know, I'm in a public school. Can I do that? And then I remember thinking, I don't have any other choice. There is no way that I can reach out for help to anyone because if I if I break this trust that we've established, there's a possibility that I'm going to be his first victim. And so I knew that reaching out for help from anyone else was not an option. And so I took a huge leap of faith. And I, I say, you know, people talk about putting your, your money where their, your mouth is. And for me, this was putting my, fa putting my uh, faith where my fear was. And so I just said to him, would you be okay with me praying with you? Maybe we should you know, pray about this because we were talking about God and he right. said, I think that would be okay. And so um, I prayed, needless to say, the most heartfelt prayer of my life. Um, I would say I, I pounded the throne of grace. I remember saying, Lord, whatever negative entity is affecting this situation, remove it from the equation. Um, I thanked God for everything I knew about him, his artistic ability, his love for music, everything that he had shared with me the Friday before. And the whole time I cried and, and he did too. Uh, I remember my eyes were open because I was <laughs> closed them <laughs> and yep. eyes were closed and uh, squeezed tightly. And um, at one point as we were, as I was praying, he raised the gun up toward his head. And I knew from the years of researching school shootings that in, in the majority of cases, people involved in mass shootings are not um, just homicidal, they are suicidal. And so I had a fear that that was what was about to take place. I knew that I could not live with watching that happen. Um, I had to try to save him, him too, not just me, yeah, right, right. students, but him too. And so I let go of his shoulder and reached out with my hand kind of towards him. And he raised the gun all the way up. And with his finger on the trigger, he scratched the middle of his head. Oh, and my Lord. Thinking, that's not funny. Nope. But I lowered the gun back down and I, you know, I finished the prayer. It's funny how sometimes you're offered these small moments of comedic relief in the middle of, of trauma. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I was grateful uh, later for that, that small moment. When I finished, 
um, he seemed much more relaxed, much more relieved, probably because we had cried quite a bit too. A lot of that had come out. The adrenaline was coming down some. The emotions were being lowered, which is what I had hoped would happen. And um, he noticed I had a medal hanging from uh, my wall for, from a 5K that I'd run. And he talked to me about running. So I forgot you like to run. And I told him that idea that I, I said, you know, I just told you guys in classroom guidance yesterday that I'm training for a marathon. So I ran this morning and I said, you know, that really wreaks havoc on the knees. And he wanted me to come back and sit down at my desk. He thought I'd be more comfortable oh. and knew that um, too much time had gone by. At that point, it had been well over an hour. And I said, um, well, I, I can't do that. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to stay right here no matter how much my knees hurt until you give me that gun. And um, he said, Miss Hudgens, I think I want to give it to you. And I said, well, why don't you let me take it? and then you won't have to give it to me because I knew that he believed that if he did not harm, harm people here, there was another incident that was going to happen. And I felt that by asking him if I could take the gun, it would remove that from him. Right. So he leaned over and he put the safety on and, and I was still on my knees beside him. So when I leaned over to take it from him, he put both arms around me and we both started to cry. And of course I'm patting him with one hand with the other hand, I'm holding what I now know because of the heaviness of it is a fully loaded um, wow. semi-automatic handgun. And I am, I am saying to him over and over, I'm so proud of you. You did the right thing. And the right thing is never easy, but it's the right thing. I told him I loved him. Um, I told him I was proud of him. Um, and I am. I still am. And um, when we finished, uh, we we stayed in that position for almost three minutes. And I know that because I watched it on the clock that's <laughs> all behind me. And I'll tell you, that's your homework after you hear this podcast is you've got to try to hug somebody for three minutes because you're going to see after about 30 seconds, it starts to get pretty awkward. <laughs> I learned one time in an elementary school that if a kid ever hugs you, you don't let go until they do. And I had boys myself. And I remember thinking, just hold him like he's yours. Just hold him like he's yours. And so when he let go, he gave me the gun and he gave me the additional magazine and the holster. And I walked back around my desk and locked it in a filing cabinet that I had. And then I went around and sat down beside him and we talked for a while. He knew that we were going to have to contact someone. I was able to convince him that, that I had a friend who worked in law enforcement that I thought could help us. Uh, his name was Chris. That just happened to have been our SRO. Um, and so he agreed that it would be okay with him if I called Chris. So I called him on the phone. When I first he first answered, he was meeting with a parent. And I did not want to divulge any information over the phone because what I had learned from years of reading and studying is that most kids involved in a school shooting do not have just one weapon. So I didn't know if this child was further armed. So I was very guarded in the wording that I used. And so Chris assured me he would come down in a few minutes. Um, a couple minutes went by, I realized he was not coming. So I asked the young man if I could send a text to my husband and let him know that Bradley had baseball practice after school that day. And he, of course he was willing for me to do that. Um, I felt guilty because I knew that what I had said was not the truth. So right. that later I did text my husband and let him know that Bradley had baseball practice. But that particular text I sent to Chris and I just said, I've just taken a lo loaded gun off of a child in my office. He doesn't know I've contacted you. I've locked it in a drawer. Please come quickly. And, um, and I waited. 
And another minute or so went by and the young man said, I think I'm just going to go back to class. And I said, well, why don't you let me try to make one more phone call? I called our assistant principal, Robin Miller, who is our current principal now. And I said to her, um, my plan was to have a conversation with her on her end that that would make no sense to her on her end. So she would know that something was not right. And when I called her office, Chris answered the phone. Oh gosh. (laughs) And I said, hey, what are you doing? I thought you were coming down. I need to talk to you about something. And he said, well, Molly, we were watching some bus video. We're still working on on a a case. And so I said, "Um, okay. And I said, well, listen, I, I, I sent you a message about the drug assembly that we have on Friday. Can you check and see if you've gotten that? I'm not sure that my messages have been going through today. And he checked his phone and he said, Molly, I'm looking at my phone right now. There are no message, messages from you. And I knew that we had poor set cell signal in this building, but I had prayed that would go through. Right. On the phone with him, he says, hang on a second. I just got a message from you. And then he starts to read it. And he reads the first sentence. I've just taken a loaded gun off of us. <laughs> oh, gosh. And he says, you stay on the phone and I'll be right there. And he was here, of course, within seconds. And he came in and conducted one of the most gracious uh, interrogations. The young man, of course, shared the same story with him that he had shared with me. And um, they were able to take him off campus without anyone knowing what exactly had happened. Um, In the days that would follow, our students rose above. We talk about with the Medal of Honor above and beyond. And one of them came to me uh, the following day after this incident. And he said, Ms. Hudgens, are you guys going to talk to us about this? Or are you just going to sweep it under the rug and act like nothing happened? And I said, we're going to talk to you about it. And so... I met with the students in our commons area and stood on a, on a chair so they could see me. And I told them there are 200 or two, were 200 eighth graders. And I said, we're not going to leave this room until I have answered every question that you have. And they had a lot of questions. And I told them, we are going to close ranks. We are going to protect this, this kid. And I said, I just did classroom guidance with you guys on Tuesday. Do you remember what the lesson was about? And one of them piped up and said, I do, Miss Hudgens. The lesson was on how one life can make a difference. And I said, that's exactly right. And I said, what were you supposed to take away from that lesson? What were you supposed to get from it? And one of them, you know, reminded me that we had talked about how sometimes you may have a friend who's really struggling and they're afraid to ask for help or for some reason they feel like they can't and that you need to stand in the gap for that person and be willing to go with them or just to ask for help for them. We might realize that we're the person who needs help. And there might not be anybody to stand in the gap. And we might have to stand in the gap for ourselves. And I said to them, and that is exactly what he did. And I said, I told you guys anytime that if you need something, if you're afraid you're in trouble, if you're afraid something's not right, you come to me and we will figure out what to do before you get in trouble. And I said, so I want you to think about the fact that that's exactly what he did that day. And he told me in the middle of the incident Uh, Miss Hudgens, I came to you because I think you're the only person that can talk me out of this. And I remember saying, well, let's talk about it. And so those kids never told this young man's name. They respected his uh, privacy. They kept his his identity uh, secrets. And they have continued to do that in the four and a half years since then. I told them all that I wanted him to have a second chance and that we were gonna rally around him and support him and close ranks. And that's exactly what they did, which was yet another miracle. Um, I am prouder of them for that probably than anything else that took place that day. So um, we had a, a beautiful resolution 
to what could have been a horrific tragedy. And I'm just so grateful that God placed me here for such a time as this. Wow. That, that is just amazing. I mean, just absolutely amazing. All the different parts of that. But I, I think the, the really heroic thing is that you have been able to speak to eighth graders and have them listen. That's amazing. <laughs> this is but, true. A lot of, a lot of experience, 23 years now. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it's just, it really is impressive. And you've got these great sound bites, you know, put not, I, I call them sound bites, but I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. just putting my, putting my fear, uh, putting my faith in my fear was and meeting him where he is. I mean, there's so many things that, all of us can learn from not just eighth graders. Uh, and I, I just love that. And so, you know, transitioning to the citizens honor that the Medal of mm-hmm. Honor um, uh, organization uh, society gave you. So you were, you've been recognized by a lot of people. I know you've been the teacher of the year in Chino County and uh, at your school and uh, a, a lot of media attention, obviously for this. Um, but I would think that the Congressional Medal of Honor Society recognition might be top on that list there. And this is an organization made up of living Medal of Honor recipients, and they espouse those values of courage, sacrifice, integrity, commitment, patriotism, and citizenship. And you were awarded their Citizens Honor Award for a single act of heroism. So what was it like to get that award? And then you've, you've talked about closing ranks and being open with mm-hmm. the students as well as your sons. So what was it like to receive the award and how do you share its values with your students and your audiences? Well, the day that I learned that I was going to be a Citizens Honor recipient, my mother uh, was having a double mastectomy. We had learned in the midst of all this that she had breast cancer. And so my dad and I were in the waiting room at the hospital when I got the call from the Medal of Honor uh, Society telling me that I had been chosen as a recipient. And I remember my dad and I both cried when I told him. And when my mom came out of surgery, um, I said to her, Mama, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to be a Citizens Honor recipient and you don't have cancer. (laughs) It is a red letter day. And it was. And so when Jason and I traveled to Washington, D.C. on March 25th of 2017, which was National Medal of Honor Day, I had purchased a book about the Medal of Honor recipients and I had sticky noted every page of every living recipient. I'd read all of their stories. I had watched their vignettes. I wanted so much to understand um, where they had been. And I had connected in the book with one of the recipients, Mr. Gary Bikirk, um, just in my mind. I've not been able to meet him yet, but I had learned that Mr. Gary, who is a recipient from Vietnam, had after he had retired from the military, had decided to become a middle school counselor. And I just knew if I could ever find and meet Gary Biker, he would understand. And so I had prayed so hard that he would be in Washington, D.C. And because of a, an illness at the time, he was not able to be there. But the, the, men, the men of the Medal of Honor and their wives and their families have embraced us as if we are one of their own. Um, Several of them have made an effort to really take care of me, to look out for me, to be mentors to me. Um, Chuck and Barbara Hagemeister have have really just supported me, prayed for me. Mr. Chuck even came to our school once to visit, which was really special. Wow. So the Medal of Honor recipients to me um, were chosen. I think that God chose them for a particular day in history to do something that only they could have done. And so while those incidents and events show their heroism, their character is really more fully portrayed in how they have lived their lives since. 
when you look at the service that they provided the military, for some of them, that was a very short period of time. It may have just been a number of, you know, very few years. Okay. Then they've spent 40 years in service since then, creating foundations, finding ways to affect the lives of young people. And for me, that is what makes them heroes. It's not a one-time event that many of them will tell you they certainly didn't plan, had no idea was ever going to happen, and didn't expect to survive. It, it is really not that. It is what they continue to do to instill in people, even like me. You know, they've given me this wonderful platform where I can I can talk about the importance of relationships in schools. And we have been very fortunate that my school has adopted the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, Foundation's Character Development Program. We teach that here to all of our fifth graders. Every time there's a new rotation, I had the chance to go and meet with those students who obviously were not students here when this incident took place. Um, I get to pass the medal around. I try very much to use it as the recipients do. I explain to the students that it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to everyone. Um, I talk about how at the end of my life, it is my intention to gift that to the Charles H. Coolidge National Medal of Honor Heritage Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, where it will stay because I want little girls who come through to see that, um, who, who know that they will probably never be a princess and might not ever be homecoming queen, that who wants to be those things when you can be somebody's hero? Oh, I love it. I challenge educators all the time. That's a hashtag that I use is go be some kid's hero. You don't have to do anything special. It may just be that you give that child time and attention that they would not have had otherwise, but that you look for ways to commit to them because that is one of our pillars is commitment. And I think it's something that's lacking sometimes in our country these days. People are used to a fast food kind of lifestyle. They want things that come easy and they want things that are very self-serving. And really, if we had to make a decision about the best way to help other people, it is to serve. And the Citizen Honors is an opportunity to, to marry the idea that heroism is not just a military concept, right. that it's something that happens every day in civilian life. And a lot of times there are not people to bear witness to that. Uh, you know, I was fortunate that I had a witness for this incident and in and, and the days that followed, but that doesn't always happen. Um, many of the most heroic Citizens Honor recipients are posthumous recipients. Right. And we have lost um, 10 uh, educators to school violence who made an effort to try to protect their students and lost their lives in the process at middle elementary and high schools around the country. And those recipients are, are very special to me. I say their names everywhere that I go. I had a bracelet made that has all their names on it. Oh, fantastic. Every single day. And every time there's a new posthumous recipient who lost their lives in a school, I have a new bracelet made. I have a company that does that for me. So it's important for me that I remember that there were a lot of, of, of our citizen recipients who lost their lives who were not gifted the opportunity for a 90-minute intervention. You know, they had an active uh, a active shooting situation and they responded heroically. And so I will never really feel like I fit in a class with those people, but I understand that somebody has to speak for them and I'm going to do that every day of the rest of my life. So to me, the, the citizen's honor was not just a one-time award that we received on a stage at a beautiful base in Arlington. It is an ongoing commitment um, to ensure that, that students understand 
how big sacrifice can be, right. how much that can require of someone, that they understand what integrity means, uh, that they understand patriotism, and that they see how we carry that out in our country in so many different ways, not just people who serve. And so it is th this Medal of Honor, Citizens Honor, has been um, more to me than just a, a medal or a trip. Uh, it is something I plan to spend my life forwarding to others. It's definitely something I want to, to leave behind. It's not my legacy, but theirs. The idea that we all can be better than we are. We all can rise above and that is what I have learned from those men and that one woman, Dr. Mary Walker, yep. I've learned from them and what I hope to instill in other students and in generations to come. Well, first of all, I, d I just have to say, uh, just I'm so glad that you are the one who, because I think some people do take uh, some recognition and then do nothing with it, but you are right. doing the exact opposite. And so I, I uh, am very, very grateful that you're using this platform uh, to show the courage and self-sacrifice. I'm also grateful that this is only an audio podcast um, because I'm over here <laughs> crying my eyes out. Thanks a lot, Molly. Um, That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but uh and again, all the research that you did ahead of time, the platform and how you're using it. And again, I, I, I was saying to you, um, I think it takes courage and self-sacrifice to, to, to research and to talk about the very sensitive issue of school shootings. And I love that, whether it's faith or it's violence in the school or any of these mm -hmm. issues that you challenge them, that you take them uh, head on. I think that is fantastic. And I also love the fact that you talk about you know, heroes come in all shapes and sizes. And they I do. think, I think you are a princess. And so the girls that are out there, um, you know, th those are our princesses. And so uh, mm -hmm. I, I love, I love how you're reaching out to, to everybody because everybody's version of a hero is different. So seriously, I think maybe I'm allergic to something in here. My <laughs> eyes are leaking. Thank you. We'll never tell. We will never tell. <laughs> But we also talked about you had a lot of research and a lot of background information and training with your with your degrees as well. Um, but where else do you think you've got this instinct to be heroic? I mean, here you are counting bullets and you're 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 gauging situations and you're taking all these things like how much your dress costs, how much your skirt costs, like all these details. Like, where does that instinct come from? Well, I believe that you know God granted me. Um, 18 years of working with students this age prior to this incident. I had had thousands of classroom interactions and private one-on-one -on -one sessions and chances to really understand um, the way that an adolescent middle school child can feel and acts. And, and I also knew from the research that I had done, I had read a lot of work by Dr. Peter Langman, who um, is part of my Safe and Sound Schools family. And he his research was something that I felt like was very helpful to me because I was able in the midst of this situation to uh, to diagnose, I guess we could use that word. I'm not, I'm not necessarily a mental health professional in that aspect, but to diagnose that this looked like a psychosis, I knew that some of the things that he was experiencing, I didn't think there were, uh, there were any hallucinations, but there were some delusions. And so I was trying to always be calming and trying to remain peaceful. And I think some of that comes from working in a setting like this for a long period of time. 
you learn not to to react quickly or harshly. You learn to speak softly and to try to really listen and and a lot of times to physically get on their level. I've sat in the hallway with kids by lockers to talk so that we're on eye level. Um, it was important to try to understand exactly where he was coming from. And when I look back on the situation, because of this training, I had had the opportunity to train law enforcement and juvenile court in our in our state. And so at the time that this happened, every single law enforcement officer who responded to our school, all of the juvenile probation officers and both of the juvenile judges who dealt with this child had been through my training. They knew me personally. Wow. So I had a special opportunity to be viewed not just necessarily as a victim of the situation, but as someone who had a professional opinion that was important to, to um, accept. And so we were able to work very closely together to make sure that this young man got help. That was something that I wanted very specifically. I did not want him to go to jail. I wanted him to get counseling. And so I feel like all of all the pieces of the community were so important. The support from our school, um, the way that our, our school system reacted and allowed me to the freedom to be able to speak um, or to choose not to speak to the media initially, but to speak myself and for us to share that with everyone. We just had a lot of pieces that worked together. And I believe it, to kind of go back to your question, I believe that was because um, there was buy-in here. I had been here long enough to respect our staff and to be respected by them and, and by, by our administration. I'd been given the opportunity to have a flexible schedule where meeting with the student took priority over some other things. So we just had a lot of intricate pieces that were able to come together that day that I believe were uh, divinely created and executed in the perfect way for us to have the resolution that we did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, just amazing. Um, so I, I really appreciate you joining us today because your story is so inspirational and it is so applicable. Um, and you tell it in its entirety and you train others also in your book, mm -hmm. Saving Sycamore, the school shooting that never happened. So where can we find your book? Uh, the book right now, you can buy it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or pretty much any online bookstore. It is available in all 50 states and in several countries. It is also in English, however. So if you need a different language, you may have to wait a few years. I'm not sure how that will work until they're translated versions, but uh, it's very easy to find or you can find it at the site of our publisher, which is Dave Burgess Consulting. Perfect. And also, you uh, your story is going to live on for future generations. Can you tell us how? Well, that's probably one of the most exciting parts of what we get to talk about today, Mo. Um, <laughs> in October, I was contacted by the National Medal of Honor Museum, and I learned that they had a, a committee, a team that was working together to create the exhibit for the Citizens Honor. And when they reached out to me, they asked if I had any um, parts of my office, pieces that were, you know, there that day that would would be something that was memorable to the situation. I remember us talking just a little bit about my desk chair. 
And I laughed and I said, oh, you guys don't know me very well. I am pretty certain that I have every single thing that was in that office that day. And so as, as we begin to talk about it, they ask if I would be willing um, to, to donate those things or to um, gift those things to the National Medal of Honor Museum in the hopes that they could create my office as it appeared on September 28th of 2016. And I thought it was a wonderful idea. Uh, they have, have been amazing to work with. Um, it was very cathartic for me to itemize each of these pieces of this place, uh, to box them up, to talk about where they were in the room, how, how the significance of some of them, because some of them were very significant, and to prepare them to be sent to Arlington for the new museum that we hope will be opening in 2024. So just the fact that I will be able to go there and see this office. Uh, Rob, who is in charge of artifacts there, said to me, we want you to be able to stand back and look at this and, uh, you know, see your office. And I said, oh, I want to be able to stand back and say, that is my office. And so everything down to my trash cans and paper shredder and sticky notes and schedules that were taped to my filing cabinet, all of those things will be there. Because I think as people visit the museum, it will be important for them to walk into someone's early morning, everyday life. I didn't go to work that day expecting it to potentially be the last day of my life. It was the day before my 40th birthday. I certainly never thought at 39 years, 364 days, it might be the last day of my life. And so my desk is cluttered. Things will not be perfect. But we did take, I did take pictures in the, the day that this happened and the days that followed. And now I know why. I think God was planning for this museum to, to find a way to honor all the citizens who have been recipients. We have some amazing people who have risked drowning, who risk fire, who have done so many things to try to sit to try and save and have saved other people, that I think that the very fact that somewhere in the middle of my heroes, these Medal of Honor recipients, is gonna be this little corner of our world, um, just, just thrills my soul, makes me so proud, and gives me great honor. And I'm so excited to see how the museum is going to make this exhibit come to life and, uh, and forever give not just me and my family, but other people who visit a chance to see that if they have not already been called upon to do something they didn't think was possible, they may be in the future. And that when that comes, they will be able to do that. So I'm so excited about that. That is, fa that is fantastic. I can't wait to see it either. Uh, Molly, thank you so much for joining us and for continuing to tell your story. I appreciate that using this You're platform. So you are a hero, you are a princess. Go be some kid's hero, meet people where they are, put your faith where your fear is, and go awkwardly hug someone for three minutes. That is your homework <laughs> assignment. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I hope everyone will join us next time on the Mission Inspire podcast.